of the show, I am going to apologise for my very, very spotty uh, posting schedule over the last couple of weeks, but uh, if you can believe it, I've been sick twice, once with food poisoning, once with the flu, the flu took my voice, the flu, the, uh, the food poisoning took my will to live, <laughs> um, then technical difficulties this week. We're on another level. Those of you who have podcasts or, or whatever, you, you'll you'll appreciate it. You'll understand it. Uh, so I do apologise. Lydia Williams is here. She's going to check in. She's going to she's going to have a yarn with us. It's going to be good as always. Before we do that, Riverside.fm, have to thank them. Always thank them. If you want to start a podcast, click click on the tile on our website. Sign up with our link. Because we get a nice little kickback. I don't think you get a discount because we're not big time. <laughs> but you'll be helping your favorite independent sports and pop culture news outlet continue to do what they do. Continue to add new shows, add new writers, add new content. Before I talk to Lydia, uh, congratulations to the Crusaders. I'm really sick of seeing Razor do that fucking stupid dance. I am kind of jealous that I can't dance like he can. It's just someone needs to beat him. <laughs> I've had enough. But no, seriously, congratulations. I got that one wrong. I thought I thought this year was, was the Blues year. Uh, but turns out really, really hard to beat the Crusaders. I know they lost a couple of games this year, but Come finals time, they just find it. They 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 peak at the right time. They find a gear that you know we don't see in in the regular season. Their defense is impressive. You know, you just have to be so patient against them, and and most teams can't hang. That's just the reality. Um, so yeah, con- congrats to them. You know, the Blues maybe a bit unlucky. Ben O'Keefe again, pretty loose at the breakdown. Crusaders took advantage. Blues didn't. So. That's that. I'll, I want to try and keep this podcast to around an hour, so I'll do a more in-depth discussion on it next week, or you'll probably get a you'll probably get a couple of podcasts in quick succession. So I'll make sure the next one I do a proper review, proper breakdown. Maybe try and talk to another expert, see what they think. Um, but I just want to talk quickly about the news that's come out this week. Australia's prepared to walk away from Super Rugby and develop their own competition. Cool. Tried it before, didn't work. No one cared about it. And it was cancelled, I think the last season was 2018. 2015, yeah, maybe 2014 to 2018. Four seasons, five seasons maybe. I mean, I, I played in it and I can't remember. So that's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty big indictment of that of that competition and the way it was marketed and, and the way people just didn't really care about it. I, I appreciate it's not exactly the same thing, but it kind of is. You know, you, you want to develop tribalism in the game, but then you're talking about creating two additional teams in Queensland and New South Wales. So just feeding the narrative that that's, that's the home, the, the, the centre of the rugby universe in Australia. But then also, so you're diluting the talent pool. That's fine. I, I actually don't have an issue with that. More professional contracts, more professional players more pathways for coaches, all of that's fine. It's actually really good long-term. I think it'll be really positive. But don't talk about tribalism when you're talking about creating two new teams. What, like North and South Brisbane? Like, is that a thing people care about? East and West Sydney? Like, I don't think anyone cares about Rugby Union in West Western Sydney. North, South? I don't think anyone cares about rugby union in South. Like, 
how are you going to create tribalism when you're just cre- you're creating new, two new teams and you, you're asking people to choose? So the Waratahs, bye bye, no more Waratahs. Sounds to me like a ploy to have a state of origin type thing, which I think is dumb. We already have that. Like everyone represents their state when they play Super Rugby, so like. So my view on this is that I think there is a roadmap to do it, but don't talk about tribalism. Talk about you want to diversify the talent pool, you want to create more pathways, you want to have more professional contracts. How are you going to pay for that? I've got no idea. You know, 70-plus professional players plus a coaching staff and an administrative staff. And if you honestly think that you can go to New South Wales Rugby and Queensland Rugby and go, okay, we're, we're going to add an extra team, but you guys are going to do the roles for both both teams. You're kidding yourselves. Crazy. <laughs> like it is. It's just ridiculous. And then, you know, like, you know, tri- in my view, tribalism is all about clubs, right? And I've heard a few people say, oh, well, why don't we just make a club competition? There, There is no club in Australia that I'm aware of that today could administer a full-time professional te- uh, professional team with a full-time professional staff as well as full-time administrative staff. Like if you think of the best, most well-resourced club in your region, so in Canberra, it's the Tuggeranong Vikings. It's my club. I worked for the club. I played for the club. We have three staff, coaching director, Athletic performance director who also looks after the academy and, and, and junior rugby. And then we have a rugby, sort of a GM, you know, rugby rugby manager, rugby ops manager. Uh, it was it used to be called rugby administration manager, but a rugby manager. Now, if you think, and, and you know, I know Sydney Uni is resourced, you know, with a, with a few extras, but if you think... That's saying, okay, we're going to get get rid of the Brumbies, no more Waratahs, no more Queensland Reds, no more Force, no more Rebels. It's a club space competition. The best eight, the best proposals from eight clubs wins. There is not a single club in Australia that could make that jump. No one is resourced that that way at at, at present. So don't talk about tribalism. Tribalism is a dumb reason to do this. If that's really what, you, if that's really why you want to do it, sure, go to, go to a clubs competition. But product's going to be pretty ordinary. So yeah, like I know I'm getting fixated on the tribalism thing. Don't don't do that. Talk about diversifying. Talk about the TV product. So if we are a truly national competition, then every game has relevance to an Australian audience. It's more attractive to a broadcaster. There's potentially more eyes on the product. Talk about, you know, talk, talk about the commercial partnerships, talk about the pathways, talk about centralising the elite talent hub, talk about a women's competition that runs in parallel because we can't, you know, we can't afford a, you know, trans-Tasman or, or, or similar competition to, to what the men have. You know, talk about tying in seven somehow. Like, just stop talking about tribalism. It's stupid. People barely care about rugby as it is. And 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 we're representing our states. The Brumbies had a home final. I went because I like to go. I can't remember what the announced crowd was, but they would have been lucky to have been 10,000 people there. So let's just stop that nonsense. <laughs> and the other concern I have, and you can talk about this year, you know, the rug- the Australian rugby teams were, were more competitive against the New Zealand rugby teams. That's true. Still had a losing record. But that's the reality. And all five New Zealand teams still made the finals. We had three. So, 
my concern is that a truly domestic competition where we don't have an opportunity to play against, you know, New Zealand, uh, you know, even Fiji, uh, even Japan, South Africa, you know, really top quality club football teams, it's going to be really hard for us to develop the way we need to develop to be competitive every year in the Bledisloe Cup, to be competitive every year in the Four Nations or whatever it's called, Rugby Championship, sorry. You know, be competitive every four years at the World Cup because we're not testing ourselves at a provincial level against, you know, there's no denying they they are consistently the best team in the world. They produce the most talent. Look at any European, even Australian Wallabies team, bunch of New Zealand-born players. bunch of them have come through the system. So if we're not getting an opportunity to test our medal against them, then I think it's going to be it's going to it's going to be detrimental both for both New Zealand and Australia. So to tightrope, I, I don't I don't um, envy the job ahead for for McLennan and, and the RA board, but I would I would be, I would tread lightly. I don't think we want to alienate ourselves, and I don't think the New Zealanders want to alienate themselves. They have kind of done that, so we do for the first time have a bit of leverage, but. I've got no problems with the domestic competition. I actually think it's a good idea, but we need to incorporate some of the top clubs, you know, within a four to six hour flight of where we are. So whether that's New Zealand, whether that's Japan, whether it's both, and it doesn't necessarily have to be part of Super Rugby Australia, whatever we end up calling it, but there has to be some kind of mechanism that we're testing ourselves against those teams. I'll finish on that point. Let's get to Lydia. Lydia, welcome back to the show. And also, welcome back to Australia. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> How's it been? I saw that you uh, took a trip back back to Kalgoorlie, back home. How was that? Uh, that was that was cool. Obviously, I haven't been back in like quite a number of years. Um, so it was nice to kind of see how nothing's changed really (laughs) things are a little bit newer but um yeah no it was nice to kind of like I guess see where I grew up and what's changed and what hasn't and and all that has it has it changed you know there is there anything that's changed or it's really just exactly the same as you remember I'd say just like newer stores um I mean the three four main pubs are still there they're still going strong I'm pretty sure we got dinner at the York one night um yep. so yeah like it's it's the same but it's not yeah <laughs> it's a, it is amazing like some of those small smaller communities smaller towns how the world almost seems to pass them by and and everything stays you know very much the same um you know my family my family traditionally long time ago now but they're from canamble so you know really sent sort of central west uh, it's a fair way away. And they used to run the petrol station there. And, you know, my mum went back, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now. And she was like, it's it's the same as I remember when, it, when I was a kid. You know, things are a little bit more modern and there's some paint and stuff around. But basically, it's exactly the same, which is wow. fascinating. <laughs> it's crazy. Country towns just never, they'll always be country towns. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's why we love them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Last time we spoke, you know, you'd sort of finished up with, with uh, it's finished the season with Arsenal, and um, you know, you were sort of talking about, um, you know, thinking about your next move. So, do you, do you have an update for us? Do you know where 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 the next stop is? Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's probably still going to be in Europe, um, yeah, and that that side of the world. Uh, as far as like signing anything, I haven't signed anything. I'm still kind of in contract. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. Hopefully in the next like couple of weeks, because I mean, I guess as everyone else is waiting, I'm waiting. So <laughs> <It's pretty> yeah, <much. laughs> it's a, it's a, it's hard, isn't it? You know, like you to to you know you obviously want to be a bit strategic with that move and make sure it's the right move for you. But then you know they they're doing their due due diligence on the other side too to make sure you're a fit there. So it, 
it is a challenge sometimes with that waiting game where you feel like you've you've found the right place, but you're just waiting for that final, you know, piece of paper that you can put your name to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially being on like the other side of the world at the moment, um, you know, it does make it quite hard to kind of everything you're doing is like someone's asleep, so you have to wait until they're awake. <laughs> yeah. That takes an extra day, and there's like public holidays here, and yeah, it's just it ends up being just a bit of a, a mess, to be honest. <laughs> and you know, I, I think that's an underrated thing that you know people don't really understand. You know, most people in Australia follow Australian sports, you know, A-League, NRL, AFL, whatever. And and for an agent or for a player, it's a relatively simple, straightforward negotiation process because there is no time delay. When you're dealing with, you know, when you're when you're sending an email at 10 o'clock in the morning, it's, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night in Europe. So there's a, you know, 12-hour time delay for any, any correspondence, you know, email, phone, whatever. So, so yeah, it is, it is a challenge. And I, I certainly would... I, I, I admire your patience because I'd be uh, I'd be chomping at the bit <laughs> to try and get something done. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I've had to be patient. There's a difference between choosing to be and having to be. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So one one thing I wanted to pick your brain about. Obviously, the Socceroos have got a huge game against Peru at four mm-hmm. o'clock in the morning tomorrow. Uh, so it's Monday today recording this on a Monday, Tuesday morning. And, uh, you know, that's a significant achievement. If they, if they can get the win there, then, you know, that's five World Cups in a row, which I think, you know, that's nothing to be to be laughed at. I think that's a, a huge achievement. But and, and I think, too, with the condensed sort of qualification window with uh, COVID sort of wreaking havoc, you know, they, they really just had one, you know, they, they got one crack at it, really. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, what... As, as someone, you know, I'm sure you follow them, you know, what, what can you tell us about the Peruvian team or even, you know, do, do they have a, do they have a specific style? I know the South Americans, you know, sort of seem, they, they play a little bit more loose than you might, than you might think, but it, you know, is, is there something you see in that Peruvian team that maybe the Socceroos could, could capitalize on or should attack? Um, I mean, it's like the, I guess where you say it's the South American style. Um, which is very creative and kind of just talented. Mm. Um, and I guess the difference with that is sometimes with, you know, the talent and the creativity, sometimes the structure yep. isn't quite there. Um, so, you know, transition is always a, an option against, you know, any kind of South American team. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's just like, you know, when we play, for example, against like Brazil, they're always going to be way more, you know, street skillful, street smart footballers than we are. Mm. Um, so, you know, to to counteract that, you have to be really strong structurally in defense. And then likewise, as you go forward, you know, either attack when they're not structured or you have to, you know, kind of try and break down the little things where, where they may get impatient or anything like that. So... Yeah, that's generally kind of, I guess, South American football in in a nutshell. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, it's the same. Like the men's kind of teams, they're, they're always so creative and skillful. And I think it's actually a benefit to the Socceroos that they're kind of on a, a neutral ground mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. sure. And, it, you know, it is interesting. I think that's that's why people love watching the, the South American teams, the Brazilians, the Argentinians, you know, obviously the two two high-profile teams in the men's game. But would it be fair to say they're really attack-minded? They really want to attack you and, and as you say, pull you out of your structure so that they can capitalise? Yeah. I mean, as the game goes on longer, I mean, for any anybody, it doesn't matter which team. You you don't want to go on extra time. You don't want to go under yeah. penalties. Uh, so for any team, especially the South Americans, they want to bury the game in the first half, second half. So... You know, as they they start the game, it's going to be full on attack, full on creativity, full on going forward. So, you know, you just have to kind of ride those waves of of what they bring and and make sure that defensively you can kind of make them more frustrated, mm. and then that's when you get yep. more joy. Yep. And you know, I, I read, you know, I've been reading up on it, and they sort of say, you know, sometimes they'll play 
you know, they'll have two number eights on the same side of the field or two wingers on the same side of the field. So those are the opportunities you have to look for when they are out of their shape to really attack that. So I think, you know. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. They're just. They're, they're, as I say, and it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's a parallel there with, with rugby. You know, the Argentinians are a huge rugby country as well. They're, they're very much the same. They have, they have these enormous forwards, so you know guys who are going to soften you up up the middle. But they they're so off the cuff with their with their attacking structure. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see that that's you know translated across. I guess it's just a South American thing. My partner's South American. She's very off the cuff in life. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good to see. It's good to see. You know, I mean, it's interesting to see that that's obviously trans. You know, uh, translated across to the way that they approach sport. And, uh, you know, as you say, for, for the Socceroos, yeah, to be on that neutral ground without, without the, uh, the raucous fans is probably fair to say uh, might be a huge advantage. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the Socceroos have kind of always been in the Middle East playing a lot of the games already. And obviously they have training camps in Dubai and, and Qatar. So kind of knowing the, I guess, outline of, where they're going to be playing is always a good thing. Um, hopefully that, you know, works in their favour. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we obviously wish them luck. We'd love to see them in another World Cup. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone thought they weren't going to go to the next round. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a huge, huge achievement. And that was certainly the sentiment, um, you know, in the media is that everyone, no one really gave them a chance. And, you know... As we know, when Australians are, have their back against the wall and, and everyone thinks we're done, it's generally when we do our mm-hmm. best work. So one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, and we've spoken about this a little bit off air, is so Dray- Draymond Green, NBA Finals, he hasn't, he hasn't been playing particularly well, and I think he would admit he hasn't been playing particularly well. And then his mum <laughs> went on Twitter... <laughs> And basic and and just roasted him. Said, "I, I don't know who this Draymond is. Is he a clone? <laughs> this um, isn't my son." <laughs> I think I die if my mom ever went onto Twitter. I'd be like, "Oh, report, report, harassment, <laughs> <laughs> false information, false yeah. information." <laughs> I don't know who is this person. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and I, I can't remember if. I told this story on air, but you know, when I when I was playing, I'm retired now. You know, my my dad very rarely missed a game, which was awesome growing up. And you know, he he was a huge part of my development as an athlete because he never he he gave praise when it was warranted, but always gave constructive feedback. So from a young age, I was always ready to receive that. But you know, even even when I was playing overseas and he wasn't watching, or he was watching on the you know, on the live stream or whatever, I could hear him, you know, in the back of my head, like I'd, I'd start walking and I'd hear him three, stop walking. I'd be like, oh, shit. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> so, you know, to wake up one morning and have a tweet saying that's not my son would be devastating. Oh, I mean, you can just tell, like, obviously they have a great relationship, but it's just funny. Like anyone who's bantering on, you know, Twitter, she's giving it right back to, agreeing with them that it's not my son (laughs) it's not my son (laughs) and you know i think uh if anyone if anyone would appreciate that it's draymond like i I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to his podcast and stuff but he's he's so he's got such good humor and he's happy he's happy to be shit on when he's when he's done the wrong thing he's happy to take responsibility for something he said but he's also more than happy to give it. Oh, yeah. I think that's, like, obviously it runs in the family. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's just funny that, you know, the mum is getting involved and, and kind of making <laughs> herself <laughs> celebrity status as well just to her own son. So, yeah. I, I enjoy, too, that, you know, people on Twitter have done the research and they're like, oh, that's Draymond's mum, so let's ask, Dre, let's ask her what's <laughs> going on with Dre. <laughs> Oh gosh, honestly, I'd I'd actually die. I think most of us would die if our families started doing that. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. It's funny, but also stressful. Oh, yeah. I mean, but also <laughs> Draymond's won how many championships? He's just been like a baller. So, really, he has like, he's just loving playing. So, you know, it's not. That's it. Deal. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, I guess when, you, when you've had that level of success for such a long period, you know, and and I guess too, like, like if you put me on an NBA court, not only would I not get any shots off, I wouldn't be able to stop anyone, I wouldn't be able to get a rebound and assist or anything. Like, so what you know, where, I guess when you're that good and you've been that good for such a long time, when you do have a little rough patch, it's it's highlighted. Like people really glob onto it and take notice of it. Um, yeah, and I think people. Really, like I've had so many conversations with people over the years. Like, oh, you know, if I put in the if I put in the time, I could, you know, I could play in the NBA or in the NBL. Like, I'll just stand in the corner and shoot threes. Like, people don't realize how enormous and athletic these guys are. Like, LeBron James is six foot eight and about one hundred and thirty kilos. Like, good yeah. luck stopping that. Oh, uh, it's crazy. <laughs> like, I always think of like, even growing up, a lot of us played cross sports and mm. just seeing athletes now like I, I would play basketball and then I'd like look at myself now to I'm like oh, there's no way absolutely no. <laughs> and then you know some of the girls like you know would have played touch or athletics so then you just look you're like absolutely no way like we made the right decision <laughs> playing football but yeah just, you know yeah. you really are destined once you start getting to a different level to that one sport yeah, and it's so eye-opening. You know, I, I was the same. I played so many sports as a kid. I played football. I played rugby, union, rugby league, basketball, AFL, cricket. And, yeah, as you get older and as you sort of, you know, maybe progress up a level or up half a level, you start to realise, oh, my God, like, this sport's not for me. <laughs> like, I remember going to a – I went to this cricket camp um, and David Warner was there. So he – so I would have been 15 and he was <laughs> – he was in year 12 or year 11. He's a couple of years older than me. And I just remember watching him in the nets being like, what? Well, I mean, I'm never going to play for Australia. Look at this guy. Yeah. It was just glaringly obvious. And it was at that point I was like, yeah, cricket, go away. I'll play something else. <laughs> <laughs> cricket, go away. I'm done with you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. All right, and then the, the the last thing before we get into some questions that I pulled from from some people, um, Nick Kyrgios, and we love talking about Nick Kyrgios on this this podcast. I think it's fair to say we we love Nick. So he he got into a bit pretty heated argument with a fan against he uh, in his game against Andy Murray, which <laughs> which he lost. Um, you know, and and I think it it raises a a really interesting question. You know, as a fan, because Nick is Nick is generally happy to engage with the crowd if it's funny, if it's good banter, like he'll play along. You know, mm. and and so as a fan, I feel like you have a responsibility to be respectful. You know, I get it. You've you've paid your money for your ticket. You want to see, you want to see these athletes do their best. And I don't think any, I don't think anyone at that level is not doing their best, even if they're playing poorly, is not doing their best. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, you have a responsibility as a fan. Like, if you want to engage with the players, that's fine. Do that. But it needs to be respectful. Yeah. And, you know, as soon as as soon as soon insults start flying, it, it starts to become a really grey area because it's a lose-lose for Nick, right? So if, if Nick goes hard at the fan, he's the asshole. But if he does nothing and he loses, he loses. Like, he loses his cool, he loses his head, loses his temper. So it's a really difficult situation for an, an athlete to be put into, in my view. Yeah, I think obviously it happens. You would know probably at rugby and even football matches, AFL. But because the stadium is so big mm. and the crowd is a little bit further away from, I guess, the field, but even because it is such a like flowing game, and it's not stop-start. Yeah. So what you do hear, you don't really hear much when you're in those team sports. Mm. Um, you just don't have time because so many things are happening and it's, it's 
you know, not just you, it's, it's everyone else that's, you know, you have to be worried about and you just don't have time to really engage in, in crowd activity. But, you know, I guess the ones that you do see is when it's, you know, corner situations and something gets thrown on the field. And then that's obviously gets dealt with by security where I guess, depending on, you know, the nature of banter or what is said in, in tennis, maybe even Mm. golf or places that do, silence maybe it is a you know the next step is security being added or or something to make sure that you know whilst it is good to have crowd you know participation and and kind of interaction maybe there's a point now where there has to be a line in the sand i completely agree and as you say with with these you know call them big stadium sports rugby football afl um the crowd is, they're so far removed. There's usually so many people there. And as you say, there's so much happening on the field that you don't really notice as an, as an athlete, you don't really notice the crowd because you're so locked into what's happening, what's happening around you, you know, on the, on the field. And, you know, I can speak from, from experience, you know, I never played in front of 50,000 people, but I certainly played in front of, you know, five, 10, 12,000 people. And, um, you know, to say I was a, uh, disliked by opposition fans would probably be an understatement. <laughs> I was, uh, as a player, I was pretty angry, especially I got angrier and angrier as I got older. Um, not dirty, but just, just you know, angry um, is probably the best way to put it. But you know, and and I, but I never, never, never even had the opportunity to engage with with uh, with with the crowd. Like I was, you know, I was too tired. um and i think i think in those sports like golf and tennis and even basketball a little bit because the the crowd is so close but in 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 particularly in golf and tennis where you have fans in close range but you also have you know periods where the athletes come out of focus you know walking back to do the serve going to the ball boy you know that's a period where they kind of relax. So you do have these windows where you can engage with the athletes if, you know, if you're brave enough to do, to do that. Um, and I think you're right. I think, you know, perhaps it is a, there, there are some security there and there's a, you know, before the match athletes kind of set their boundaries with the security guards or something where they say, you know, if it's fun and, you know, it's in the flow of game, I'm happy to, I'm happy to let it go. I'm happy to have a laugh. But as soon as it starts to, to, encroach on my focus you know maybe i give them a sign or i talk to the the chair umpire and say hey you know we need to we need to we need to uh calm this down because you know as we've as we've spoken about like mm-hmm. nick is so so good with the fans like he made us all care about doubles so you know if yeah. if, if it gets to a point where he's like well okay like i don't i don't want to engage with the crowd anymore you know that's 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 a shame for tennis because he is such a draw for that reason. Yeah. I just think that it's just, you know, changing it from, I guess, what's allowed to the, like, it's a privilege to that Nick is doing that. Like, he's completely breaking the mould and how he's bantering yeah. and interacting. And, um, you know, it's it's a privilege to kind of have someone, you know, of that calibre to, to do that. It's not, not normal. Yeah. So... You don't want to, you know, I guess, change what's something that's new in the sport, but also gets to a point where as an athlete, like at the end of the day, we're still human too. So, you know, all that stuff that does get said, it does hurt and it does like affect your performance sometimes. So, you know, it's, it's not, you know, every day, like, you know, walking down the street and saying something to someone as they're passing by, it's kind of the same thing. It's just athletes are, a different kind of pedestal. And I think that's a really good point. I think, you know, fans, media often forget that these people who we see on the TV and we go and pay money to, to watch at the end of the day, they are just like us. They are, they are human beings. And I can promise you, they read everything that's, that's written. They see all the comments on Twitter and Instagram, you know, they watch the segments about them. And I, I think 
as you as you say, because because they're put on this different pedestal, people people forget. You know, you wouldn't walk you wouldn't walk up to a colleague and just say, "Oh, you had a shit day today." Yeah. <laughs> you know, in any in any job, you would never do that. Um, and yet, we're happy to sit here in our armchairs as fans and as as media pundits and say that often often without even providing you know, the analysis to back it up. Oh, he's shit. I don't like him. But but why? <laughs> yeah, and a lot of the times you just don't know what's happening in, in personal lives. Like there could be something within the family or, you know, um, you know, you have low health, like low iron, like all of a sudden you have to do all these blood tests and supplements and kind of building your back or injuries. And they all lead to you know, us just being, or athletes just being human. Like we're just looking after ourselves in a different way. But the time that we get to spend on ourselves away from TV or media is like very, very short. And generally mm. with period, there's going to be some slumps and times that are probably not where people think you're at your peak. And mm. yet, you don't have time to, you know, say, oh, guess what? I've been, um, <laughs> you know, I have low iron, someone, iron supplements. I need <laughs> yeah. to roll my ankle doing some running. So I'm not quite, so you can't, you don't want to give that explanation. Like, no, and you, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to, to justify yourself. And even if you do that, there are going to be media pundits and fans who are like, oh, like, look, just making excuses. Look at all the excuses. It's like, they're not excuses. These are the things I'm dealing with in, in my life. And like, like, everyone has bad weeks at work. Everyone has bad days. Everyone has periods where they can't be, you know, they, they can't be bothered. They don't have the energy for whatever reason, can't sleep, all of that. But because you're an athlete and you get to play a game for a living, people just assume it's different. It's com- mm-hmm. it's exactly the same thing. It's a it's yes they get to play a game for for a living and they love what they do, but it's still it's still a job. Yep. And if you're all consumed by it, of course there are going to be weeks where you struggle, just like mm-hmm. everyone else. Yeah, I think it's also, you know, being an athlete, you get the privilege of having access to everything in terms of the specialists around you. Mm. So you do get like the sports psychs, the sports scientists, the nutritionists. And with that, you have to be open with these people because sometimes you don't know what's happening with your body. Mm. So then you're used to kind of being open in that way where when people don't understand or, you know, they haven't had, you know, that same access sometimes. And that's hard to, to understand what people yep. are going you don't know because you haven't experienced it. Yeah, you know, you you. I guess the worst injury you could probably get, you know, sitting in an office is a sore back from sitting too much. Apple <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. In the in the wrists yeah. and fingers, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I've, heard, I've heard that's pretty painful. But yeah. but both of those things, particularly carpal tunnel, they impact your ability to do your job. Mm-hmm. So as an athlete, if you're dealing, you know, if you're dealing with some family drama or, or, you know, some, some, a death in the family, you know, or, a, as you say, a, a rolled ankle, a, a broken thumb, you know, whatever it is that you're pushing through, it impacts your ability to do your job. And I just, yeah, we just don't humanize athletes in the same way that we do our, our work colleagues and our friends and our family members, mm-hmm. which is, uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a shame really that we, we don't yeah. have that level of foresight, you know, insight into, into athletes' lives. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think Na- Naomi Osaka has been like a really good example is that she's, you know, gone out there and been quite honest with how she feels and, you know, where she's at and stuff. And at first it was, you know, we still criticise her if she's, you know, dropped out of the US Open or, or whatever it is, you know, but you know, it's real things that she's gone through and is going through and is very open. Like she didn't have to be open about that, but no, but she, she felt, 
and and you know I have a huge amount of respect for her for this because she felt it was really important to bring to mm-hmm. bring that conversation to the forefront and, and be really open about it in in the way that she's feeling and why I guess the, uh, getting people to understand the why is was mm-hmm. seemed to be really important to her and you know I think it's set a really good example for for young athletes coming through to be able to have that conversation, not just with their coaches or with their families, but also with, with their fans, with tournament officials, with sponsors, even. You know, I think Naomi Osaka's in terms of her, um, you know, putting my marketers hat on in terms of her sellability and and her commercial viability has only actually made herself more attractive to sponsors and, and commercial partners because of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's, yeah, I guess we're we're getting there, but you know, I still I still cringe every time I see Stephen A. Smith or or someone on you know Sports Center go go harder to go harder to player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because and I you know I understand why they do it. The headline, you know, they they got to sell subscriptions to their streaming services and all of that. But at the end of the day, you know, that person probably has a kid or mother, sister, brother, friend who has to hear that rant and then, you know, potentially deal with the fallout, which we, yeah. we don't often think about. All right. So let's get into some of these questions. So I, I, I didn't get to all of them and there are a lot of double ups. So um, these <laughs> are kind of the ones that I thought we'd cherry, cherry pick for, for lack of a better term. So the first one Who's the best player that you've played with or against? It's a tough one, I'm sure. Yeah, I think it just in terms of, I guess, soccer or soccer. Who? What was that? Uh, uh, like <laughs> football brain and how they actually are on the ball and just like their humility and their consistent three consistency throughout like their their career i'd probably say kim little and mm-hmm. i've had i played yep. against her for a while both in w league and then the nwsl and then now playing with her in arsenal mm. just seeing how she is as a leader, as a player, as a person, experience both against and with, and just how she's kind of just been the same throughout her whole career. It is really kind of extraordinary seeing, you know, I I think you don't really appreciate all of that until you you actually see her in real life and kind of know her and, and watch her over a couple games over years. It's just, it's just quite incredible. I think. Um, see how she yep. is. Do you, do you, do you take a lot from being around someone like that? You know, listening to the way that she talks about the game and the way she prepares and, and all of that. Like, is that, is that something you take note of, notice? Of? Yeah. I think um, just, she just has a, I guess like a quiet humility, like both on and off the pitch. You know, she's not, superstar mm. like just talking to her she's like i won't shoot unless i know that it's on target or i'm gonna score she's like i just know yeah and knowing having that like confidence in yourself of like i guess how good you are but how talented you know you are to know that okay that's not for me or that's not my position i'm gonna pass. yeah d- yeah and just to be able to think about that in the moment yeah like Am I going to hit this? No, I'll, I'll pass or I'll get into a better position for, for someone else to, to have a shot. Like that's, that's an, in, you know, cause that all happens in, I don't know, milliseconds. Like, so, so to have that kind of um, foresight as, as you're on the ball is pretty impressive. Yeah. It's just, it's just incredible. Like how she kind of just says like little things throughout or, you know, you can have like a conversation with her and be like, Oh yeah, no, that didn't work. This work, let's try something. Um, She's mm. always up for for trying something that you might think might work. Like, be like, no, yeah. that's not it. Or, you know, she's always up for a discussion and be like, well, how do we 
get better or how do we fix this? And I think that's, you know, as she's getting older in her career, just knowing that she still has that in her and, and still wants to learn. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's really, it's really quite or like extraordinary kind of talking to her and, and understanding her. Yeah. And it not that fascinating, you know, when you, when you hear about these great players in any, in any sport, that's the kind of, that's the attitude that they have that, that, you know, they, they are so secure in their own abilities and, and what they can bring to a team that they're more than happy to go, Hey, that's my fault. Or, Hey, you know, I'm ha- let, let's, let's try that because what I'm, what I'm saying didn't work. You know, they, they have this hunger to constantly improve themselves and constantly learn. I think it's, it's really fascinating to hear you, you say that about her for someone who's had such a long and, and successful career to still be thinking that way. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's just been really like nice kind of being on both sides of, I guess, the, the Kim Little experience. <laughs> so, kind of like <laughs> finishing it with being like, she's my teammate. That, that's probably been the best. <laughs> it's, but, but it is, it's always, it's always, you know, you, you, you obviously play against a lot of really good players, but you don't get to see them day to day. So it's, it's often hard to, to, to comment on a, on an opposition player, unless they're, you know, far and away the best player you've ever seen. But when you actually get to spend time with someone, um, you know, it's much easier to talk about a teammate because you know, you know, you know how, how much they commit and, and mm-hmm. the, 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 um, the commitment to their craft and that sort of thing. So I get, you know, the, I guess that question feeds into this one. Uh, when you were coming up, as a player, who who were you know some of the players and, and coaches that you learnt the most from? Um, I think well, Tom Samani obviously brought me in. Um, yep. just me train at the AIS and um, just kind of like the improvements over camps that they were in, and so obviously like him as a coach was probably the biggest impact in the first part because I, I didn't really know what I was doing in terms of yeah, I wanted to represent Australia, but, like, you know, I didn't make young Matildas. I was still kind of, like, really young. And then being brought in at, at 16 from, like, him just seeing that, it was, like, quite incredible being, like, oh, yeah, no, I, I like, believe in you. And that was kind yeah. of the first, like, push that I got of, like, oh, like, you know, head coach actually sees something. Mm. That was probably kind of the most impact in, in terms of a coach. Um, for players, it's probably when I was went to Chicago yep. uh, in 2009. And that team was stacked. Like there was up-and-coming players like Megan Rapino, Karen Carney, um, then like established with um, Lindsay Tarpley, um there was Caroline Johnson, who was the goalkeeper, won like Olympic goals, World Cups. Um, like it, the team was just incredible. Yeah, yeah. And I never played one minute, but <laughs> think, yeah, I was only like twenty, so I was like, I didn't expect to play. It was my first pro contract, and kind of being around that environment and seeing these women especially from other clubs as well, um, just how they developed and kind of put their skills to the test mm. and at that time probably the best league in the world mm. and just learning everything from them. And, I mean, the, my coach at the time was Emma Hayes too. So, wow. you know, it, it was just a team that had like all these future – and current superstars in every position, basically. Mm. Isn't it fascinating, you know, that you can learn so much in a year where you don't play or a season where you don't play, you can learn so much just through observation and talking to people and, and, and watching and listening and taking it all in. Mm-hmm. And, like, it was just interesting. Like, all these people, like Cristiani, like all these players that, have had long-term stints in their national teams. Yeah. And 
maybe that's like you know they become legends and um you know maybe that's just where it was the time where that was just a lot of people had longer I guess I don't want to say sentences but stints in in national teams but like kind of seeing ones that have already been there long a long time ones that were currently there and then ones that were coming through to then be you know in in that kind of position and it was really kind of Whilst at the time it was all about, whoa, I'm in America, <laughs> <Yeah>. cool. <laughs> now, like looking back and kind of experience it, like it, I learned so much yeah. from being there. That's so cool, and and you know, I think that's a that's a really good lesson for for any young player. You know, while you want to be playing, you do have to bide your time, and you can actually you can actually expedite the process if you really buy into you know what the team's doing. And, you know, steal the secrets from from some of the more established players. Because most of them are happy to give them up. You just have to listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just, you know, making sure that you don't, you go in with, you're going to learn something from that experience. Whether or not it's, it hurt, you don't play, or you end up having a great season. Like, I think you can always learn something from it. And you never know. you know that sometimes, like when you six years from then, that person's going to help you out with your yeah, next move. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So the next one, if the Matildas are going to win the World Cup, what's the one thing you think can set the team apart from everyone else? The home crowd, hundred <laughs> percent. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just it's been so. Now that we've been playing at home a lot more, it's just been so nice, like, having the crowd there. And, like, I I just remember when we had the – during just before COVID, when we had the Olympic qualifiers after we go to Wuhan and ended up being in Sydney, and that final game against China, and there was 5,000 people in the stadium. Like, there was literally not many people at all. But when we scored that equalising goal, I've never – like, that was, like – it sounded like there was 35,000 people there. Like it it was insane. And I think just like playing at home just makes, I don't know. It's just nice knowing that you can actually play in front of family and friends. When you, and you know, too, like any, any game you play, there's going to be more Australians in the, in the crowd than, than whoever you're playing. So, you know, that there's (laughs) going to be noise, you know that, and it is, it is fascinating how big a lift the crowd can give you. You know, you hear that cheer and you just, you, you know, you grow an extra leg. You, you, you get, you get an extra burst of energy. You know, some of those 50, 50 calls start to go your way because the crowd starts to put pressure on the referee and on, and on the, and the, on the opposition team. So all of a sudden you can build momentum just from having a loud crowd. So I think it's going to be so cool to have, to have you guys here, like have your base here, be able to, you know, have your friends and family around a lot. So it's going to feel like it's going to feel less, uh, you know, less like a, a tournament and more like a holiday in a way. <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. not the best way yeah. to put it, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, next one. I like this question. So what advice would you give a parent whose child is just starting out on the elite football pathway? To a parent? Yeah. Um. Gosh, it's probably just being supportive um, and really, you know, when my mum would say to me, as bad as this sounds, but she would try and give me advice, I mm. don't, I didn't want her advice because she couldn't help me get to the next level. Yeah. I needed yep. the advice from my coaches. Yep. And I think that's a really, really important point for every parent, you know, and I see it a lot in, so as you say, your, your, your parents can't help give you the feedback you need to get to the next level, but they can certainly be an advocate for you mm-hmm. and, and provide the support you need and the safe environment you need to progress. But as a parent, you don't know what the coach or the administration or whatever is asking of your son or daughter. And so, you know, you might be giving 
really detrimental feedback to an athlete thinking you're doing the right thing, but it's completely the opposite of what the, the, the coach has asked that athlete to do. So I think that's a really, really good, good point for, for parents whose kids are on that track is if you do, you know, if you do want to be part of that feedback process, reach out to the coach, see what, see what they're asking for. I feel like I've hijacked your question. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you're the same. I think it's, um, you just have to be supportive. Like it's, it, it's a stressful situation to be an athlete. Um, yeah. You know, you're competing not only with yourself, but with other people mm. and, you're trying to be like a good teammate, but then also improve yourself. So it's a hard like balance to juggle. And sometimes, you know, your safe haven is home and with mm. your family. So I guess it's how can you make a less stress free environment? So, yeah. you know, you know, family board game nights or, you know, going out to dinner or, you know, it was a hard day at training. Let's go to the movies, just something to like help, get that young because I guess the the problem and the or the difference between a young athlete and then an older experienced one if I know that I'm stressed I'll do something because yeah. I already know how I feel where as a younger athlete all I wanted to do was focus on football do this what can I do to get better and sometimes that's the hardest thing to do yeah. So, you know, whatever you need as a younger athlete, sometimes your parents just need to take you out of that stressful environment. Yeah. And I, and I think as a parent, you know, you know, even when your kids don't want to communicate to you, you know when they're struggling with something. And so I think mm-hmm. that's a really good way to help them without them knowing you're helping them. Take them to the movies, yeah. you know, take them, take them to the zoo, you know, something that you know that they like to do, even if they're a little bit resistant, just take them, get them, pull them out of that headspace. Uh, because, you know, I promise you that when they get home and they're able to reflect, they'll feel much better about, you know, about their sport and what, and whatever's happening because you're creating that safe environment for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think that's hit the nail on the head. <laughs> and then the last one, uh, what's been the single biggest hurdle in your career? And then the follow-up is, and how did you overcome it? I'd say um, purely kind of uh, physical is obviously my ACL the second yep. time. Um, Cause that was 10 and a half months outside of a world cup. And I had to make yep. it. Um I really only had nine months and then we'd go into camp a month outside. So it was nine and a half months to be literally ticked off. Can I perform? Um, and, you know, like I said, like I, I was very, very privileged to be based at the AIS and have access to everything. Um, the best medical, um, physical, um, I had, you know, a psych with me, nutritionist. I had everything I needed to, to get, get back for it and I made it. But literally that was so hard because I have had to put everything into someone yeah. else's hands. So any control I kind of felt, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have anything. So yeah, I think as an athlete, that's like the hardest feeling, that kind of loss of control. And, you know, with, with an ACL, particularly when you've done one already, you know straight away, as soon as it happens, you're like, and you, you know, I obviously don't want to speak for you, but but I always, you know, and I've had a few bad ones, bad knee injuries. The it's almost like PTSD. These flashbacks of the rehab and the early mornings and the pain, you know, and and being pushed through through the pain of of the stiff knee to try and you know loosen up the the scar tissue and all of that. Like all of that runs through your head in about six seconds, and often it's just com- completely mm-hmm. overwhelming. Yeah, I'd say that, you know, that that's probably the hardest thing um, physically that's like I've gone through. But obviously there's been like, you know, mental mental health stuff of like, you know, just being feeling burnt out and just going on. Obviously now like kind of getting in that 
age bracket of like when you transition outside of you know an athlete to a different career and all that's new so it's like exciting but it's also really scary um so Mm. that's kind of like new feelings that is happening outside of just being an athlete so yeah that's definitely something that's ongoing and rears its head every time you feel tight or tired where you're like well can I keep going so (laughs) yeah yeah is this it is this the last year yeah yeah, that's definitely something that you know I guess everyone goes through when they're done with their career but yeah going going through it every intermittent kind of you're like oh god we're going it's it's all it's almost like that assignment you know you, you keep putting off and then you, you know every now and then something happens you go oh like i've got to do that it's due in <laughs> it's due in a couple of weeks basically it's all you know it's like that anxiety just hits you like oh god what am i doing i think yeah. i got my it's resume funny. gosh it must have been a couple months ago and i was like resume like get working <laughs> yeah. i don't know what you mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's so it's so true though like you know when you you know you commit yourself to to one thing and there's a period there it's pre- and it's probably a good 10 year period where you just don't think about what's next nah. and then all of a sudden and you know you know you everyone i would hope is is using that time to you know educate themselves or start a podcast or or whatever to, to get themselves some skills but you know you're not really thinking about it and then yeah you kind of get to like 30 ish somewhere there and you start going oh okay my, you know, my legs are a bit tired. Yeah. You know, my, my, my calves are a bit sore than they usually are. <laughs> or someone and it's the, yeah. it or something and you're like, oh, am I? <laughs> what, is, that, yeah. is that the thing that's next? <laughs> what, what I have, why am, I, am I doing that? So- <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I think, you know, as an athlete, there are, there are so many hurdles that you face. You know, for me, it was coming to the – Coming to the realization that I was not going to play Super Rugby, you know, wasn't wasn't in the in the in the stars for me. It wasn't good enough. Probably didn't commit myself at the at the front end of my career enough. And so, coming to that realization, you know, at twenty four, and then figuring out what I wanted to do to do after. So, you know, I was lucky. I played overseas and um, got my degree and and all that. But you know that. You know, there's there's that, and then there's injuries. There's, you know, getting it. You know, feeling like you're not progressing in an environment. You know, that's a that's a big one that athletes come across a lot. So, you know, I think, and again, not to not to uh, not to hijack your question, but you know, over a if you're lucky a, a 15 year professional career, you're going to have so many hurdles. Um, that are not just injuries. They're, it's all the things that, that Lydia is just, just discussing. So, you know, in terms of overcoming it, it's almost like – I heard this saying the other day and so this guy and he's, he's in the woods and he's saying, I can't, I can't see the other side. I can't see the light the other side. And the guy who was with said, well, can you see your next step? And he said, yep. He said, so just take that. And then once you've done that one, take the next one and take the next one. So I think that's a pretty good – metaphor for life uh, and hurdles and injuries. You know, when, when you feel like you're stuck, just figure out what your next step is and then worry about one after that later. It's always good to plan, but sometimes you have to be flexible when that plan changing. Yep. Yep. All right, Lydia, I'll, I'll let you go. As always, appreciate your time. Enjoy Enjoy, you know, the next few weeks or, or however long you're going to be, you're going to be here in Australia and, and um, yeah, a yeah. week play Spain. So oh, interesting. True. True. So yeah, good. You know, good luck. Good luck for that. Good, l- <laughs> good, luck. good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Enjoy that. I should say. <laughs> yeah. I'll be busy. I'm having a break. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a good way to dust off the cobwebs. You know that they're going to pepper the net. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, we've we've really appreciated your time, and we enjoy having you on. So, anytime you want to come back, you're welcome to. 
And uh, yeah, we look forward to, to hearing what your next move is, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Perfect. Will do. I'll keep you updated. All right. Thanks, mate. Well, thank you. Once again, thank you to Lydia Williams. It's always good to chat. Hopefully, we know in the next few weeks where she's headed next, whether it's back to, back to Arsenal or, or somewhere else. I think she deserves a, a big, fat paycheck. <laughs> We'd give it to her if we could. We certainly would give her, give her what she's worth if we could, but uh, even, even I don't get paid, sadly. <laughs> thank you for listening again give him liam podcast on the cover podcast network make sure you head across to the website www.thecover.com.au check out everything that's on there you got the fifth and dribble podcast you got the daily dribble podcast you got tobias canning apparently more is coming make sure you subscribe to our social media Instagram seems to be the place to be for all of our stuff, all of our band videos, all kinds of stuff. So make sure you give that a like. Follow us on Facebook too if that's your if that's your preferred. We're on Twitter as well. But Instagram seems to be the spot. Looking into TikTok, I don't get it. But apparently the kids do. So maybe check us out there. We might be there already and no one's told me thank you to riverside once again i look forward to i look forward to another podcast next week i think next week is going to be a really interesting guest i won't give it away too much but it's a really it's a really fascinating area of sport we've i've touched on it before but yeah it's going to be interesting to listen to to him Got some probing questions I'm going to ask, so tune in for that. But please, check out the website. Subscribe to the newsletter. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, if you've got a story for us or, or a video for us or something, piece of content. Want to write for us, do that too, because you can. I'll be back next week. Have a good week. I'll see you later.